So our reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verses 1 through 18. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes awe, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. The word of the Lord. Well, um, do you remember a year ago? And I know that seems like forever ago, but cast your mind back. Uh, one of the 
dominating conversations uh, or stories at that time with democratic debates. Do you remember? And this was a whole year and a half before the 2020 presidential elections. Now, of course, everything's changed. It seems like we live in a two-issue world, the pandemic and racial justice. But even those are political. And of course, November is right around the corner. It seems like we can't escape politics in this world, all of which makes Revelation a phenomenally relevant book for us because Revelation has a lot to say about politics. And this passage that we just read is like ground zero for the conversation. You know, what is politics anyway? Is it like this separate sphere of our lives that's only concerned with neutral public policies and the only time you engage with that is when you go to your local polling place and cast your ballot? It's tempting to think of it like that, especially because we have this thing called separation of church and state that makes it sound like it's possible to take like an imaginary scalpel and separate the different parts of our lives into these um, well-defined places. You know, is that what politics is like? Or is it something that soaks up all of our lives? Kind of like dropping a sponge into a bucket of water. It just infiltrates every part of our life together in this world. I think most people would say, yeah, that's really more what it's like. It's, it's not really a separate sphere of our lives. It's all about what kind of a world are we making together, which makes politics a very complicated question, especially when you start asking things like, should Christians be involved in politics? Many people would say Christians are way too political, and other people would say the church isn't political enough. You see, what is politics? And if you're a Christian, or if you're exploring Christianity, uh, should Christians be in, engaged in politics? And if so, what should that look like? We're not going to fully answer all of those questions in the next 25 minutes, but this passage does have a lot to show us about politics and especially the church's relationship to politics. Revelation is a picture book that jumpstarts our imaginations and reveals important truths to us. It uses pictures to do that. The picture in this passage is of a beast, or really two beasts. Let's look at this passage and see what these beasts show us about politics. And we're going to see three things, the nature of these beasts, the danger of the beasts, and lastly, how we should respond to these beasts, all right? The nature, the danger, and how to respond to the beasts, okay? Now, first, the nature of the beasts. Last week in chapter 12, we saw that history is a story of cosmic rebellion against God and that Satan is the leader of that rebellion. Now, if you struggle with the idea that Satan exists, there's a real devil. Let me just invite you to consider the possibility that if there are real supernatural forces of good at work in the world, that there could also be real supernatural forces of evil. So chapter 12 describes Satan as a dragon with seven heads, 10 horns, and seven diadems. Now, uh, heads, horns, and diadems, which are crowns, those are ways, those are pictures of describing power and authority. And seven and ten are numbers that uh, refer to completion and perfection. All of this is a way of saying that Satan sets himself up as God, but he's a fallacious God. He's a fake. It's kind of like if you were to go to Times Square in New York City, there are all these vendors there 
selling designer handbags, but they're not real. Um, they look real, but they're counterfeit, they're fakes, they're knockoffs. That's what Satan is. He pretends to be God, but Satan is a knockoff of God. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have any power. He does have power, and he gives that power to his representatives in this world. That's where Revelation 13 brings us. It begins with a beast rising up out of the sea, and it describes this beast with 10 horns, seven heads, and 10 diadems. And then it goes on to say that um, this beast looked like a leopard and a bear and a lion, and that Satan gave this beast his power, his throne, and authority. Now, if you've been with us, you might remember that Revelation is full of hundreds of references to the Old Testament. And that if you're going to understand Revelation, you have to understand the references. This passage is, is referring back to Daniel chapter 7, which describes history as a series of political empires. It's a series of, of human political empires. In Revelation 13, the image is showing us that by referring back to Daniel 7, that this beast is a um, it's human political empire. It's human political power. And this beast sets itself up as the savior of the world. So that just as Satan is a knockoff of God, this beast, human political power, is a knockoff of Jesus. And you see that especially when it describes the beast as having a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. That is a knockoff or a parody of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, this first beast is a knockoff of Jesus. Now, stay with me for just a little bit longer. Uh, in the second half of this chapter, we get introduced to another beast. This beast, it says, makes the earth and all its inhabitants worship the first beast. Here's what this means. In the ancient world, um, everyone was required by law to worship the emperor. And there was an empire-wide system that enforced that worship of the emperor. It was called the imperial cult. It was kind of like false religion or state-sponsored religion. It really, it was, it was like an ideological propaganda machine that got people to worship the emperor. Maybe some of our nearest equivalents in our modern-day world would be like hyper-partisan churches or especially hyper-partisan cable news shows. It's false religion. Now, I realize this is a lot of information to process, but here's what all of this means for us. These, this political beast and this religious beast work together. That means that, that politics is, is never spiritually neutral territory. Politics is never spiritually neutral territory. The, the most important areas of our lives, the areas of our lives that have ultimate significance are, are never spiritually neutral areas. And, um, and you see that in this passage. And as I just mentioned, uh, you know, it's tempting for us. We have a tendency to think of these things as separated. In other words, especially because of the separation of church and state in our country, we have a tendency to think that, that spiritual reality, questions of spiritual reality, are separate from questions of public policy and that it's possible for public policy to be this spiritually neutral territory. Revelation 13 is showing us that it's not. So let me give you an example. Right now, one of the main conversations in our country is the area of racial justice, and rightly so. 
Now, many people um, on the right and on the left disagree about this issue, but nobody disagrees that every human being has inherent worth, value, and dignity that must be preserved. No one disagrees about that. Here's the thing. That is not a spiritually neutral statement. You know, there are many scientists like Sam Harris, for instance, who would say, look, we can measure human well-being. Um, and therefore, we don't need God or religion to explain things like morality or human rights. Now, let's just say for the sake of argument, okay, yeah, it's possible to measure human well-being, things like happiness or freedom to make decisions about your life or meaning and purpose. Let's say for the sake of argument, yeah, it's possible to measure those things. Here's the question, the big question. Why should we be committed to each other's um, well-being? The, the mere fact that well-being exists and that we can measure it doesn't tell us why we should value it. The, the mere existence of facts themselves can never tell us what to do with the facts. The fact that we can split the atom doesn't tell us whether or not we should build an atomic bomb and drop it on another country. The fact that, we can, that human beings have different genetic traits doesn't tell us whether or not we should sterilize human beings with certain traits in order to keep them from reproducing. The facts themselves can never tell us what to do with the facts. For that, you need something else. Friends, unless there is an absolute standard of right and wrong that exists outside of our natural world, then we can talk about our moral preferences, we can talk about our moral feelings, but it's nonsense to talk about moral obligations. Here's the point, that the deepest areas of our lives, the most important, ultimately significant areas of our lives, the areas that politics has to deal with, that is not spiritually neutral territory. Politics and religion always go together, and that leads to our next point. We've just seen the nature of these beasts, but secondly, we need to look at the danger of these beasts. Because, um, you know, we've just seen that, that, um, that politics and our deepest spiritual impulses, there's a deep connection between those things. But therefore, Revelation is showing us that we're always going to be tempted to worship politics. And boy, that really comes out in this passage when you look at it. Because uh, worship is one of the primary themes in this passage. You know, Christians worship one God who exists in three persons. So we worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's called the Trinity. Here in Revelation 13, what we have is a knockoff trinity. Uh, Satan is a knockoff of God the Father. Um, the first beast, human politics, is a knockoff of Jesus. And the second beast, false religion, is a knockoff of the Holy Spirit. The, 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 this is an unholy trinity at work in our lives, a, a knockoff trinity. And it, its main job is to set itself up as the savior of the world and get us to worship it. And by the way, worship is one of the most important themes in this whole chapter. So for instance, if you look at verse four, it says that, that they, the people of the earth, worshiped the beast. Or verse eight, it says that all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Or verse 12, it talks about the second beast and says it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Now, what does all of this mean for us? Let me put this as simply as I can. The danger of the beasts is the danger of worshiping politics. The danger of these beasts is the danger of worshiping politics. Why is that so dangerous? Well, 
think about this with me. The images in Revelation uh, reveal to us the true nature of things. That's how Revelation works. The images are revealing the true nature of things. So for instance, in chapters 1 and 11, the church is pictured as a lampstand. That's telling us that the, the true nature of the church is to be a light to the world. Or in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, there's a series of chaotic events like plagues and wars that are pictured for us as, as trumpet blasts. That The picture is telling us that God uses these things as a way of waking us up and getting our attention like Reveille. Wake up! That's what these images are showing us. Here in chapter 13, um, what is the image showing us? The images in Revelation um, are intended to reveal the true nature of things, and many times they're intended to shock us into seeing the true nature of things. That is exactly what's happening here in Revelation 13. What is the picture? It's a picture of human political empire of human political power. But what's the image? What's the picture? It's a beast. It's a combination of, of a leopard, a bear, and a lion all wrapped up together in one monstrous concoction. And it is definitely not human. What is this image showing us? Well, let me put it like this. The image is showing us that the worship of power deforms and dehumanizes us. The worship of human political power deforms and dehumanizes us. That the more we worship human political power and, and look to it as the way to change the world, the irony is the less human we become and the less the world becomes the place that it's supposed to be. That the worship of power deforms and dehumanizes us. That's why in verse 18, it, um, it says, let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man, or really just a human number, and that number is 666. Now, a lot of people have gone crazy trying to figure out what this number means. Many people have tried to assign this number to some historical figure like Nero or Napoleon. And here's the thing. It might refer to some historical figure that will appear at the end of history. That's entirely possible. But revelation functions symbolically, including the numbers. So think about this. What is the number seven? If you've been with us, seven represents completion and perfection. That means that 777 would be the, the Trinitarian perfection of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Are you starting to see what 666 might stand for? Every time human political power tries to be God, it's always trying to be God and always failing. It's always coming up short. 666 simply represents humanity's triple failure to be God. And, and one of the main ways this works is that politics gets us to worship it, to bow down to it. And the main ways it does that is by fear and deception. So for instance, if you look at verse 7, it says the first beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It's operating by fear. The second beast, in verse 14, it says that it deceives those who dwell on the earth. The main weapons that politics uses to manipulate us into bowing down and worshiping it are fear and deception. So if you look at our country right now, if you look at our political discourse right now, I mean, it's full of, of propaganda and hype and spin. We live in a post-truth world where we always have to be on the lookout for fake news or internet bots that are lying to us and deceiving us. And when you look at, 
at what do we worship in this country? Many people would say, oh, I believe in God. But, but if you look at what we fight about, if you look at how we behave, if you look at what we plaster all over social media, what do we worship? We worship politics. And especially if you listen to, to how we talk about it, what do you hear? Fear. Catastrophic thinking. This next presidential election that's coming up is being portrayed for us as a life and death struggle um, over the very existence of civilization, or at least democracy. Now listen, I am not saying that, that this isn't important. It is. And I'm also not saying that we shouldn't care or be involved. We should. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But this is showing us that the most important areas of our lives are spiritual areas and that we're always going to be tempted to worship these things and that the main weapons politics uses to manipulate us into worship is through fear and deceptions. That worship of power deforms and dehumanizes us. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the nature of the beasts. We've seen the danger of the beasts. But lastly, we need to see how do we respond to these beasts? Because here's where we're at. In point one, we saw that... Um, uh, the most important areas of our lives are spiritually charged. They're spiritually freighted. Things like human rights, meaning, and purpose. So if this universe is nothing more than the result of a mindless, unguided, natural process, then those things are illusions, and yet we know they're not. That the most important areas of our lives, that is not spiritually neutral territory. But secondly, we just saw that we're always going to be tempted to bow down and, and worship politics, and that whenever we do that, it deforms and dehumanizes us. Do you see the dilemma here? How are we supposed to engage in something as spiritually significant as politics without being spiritually deformed and dehumanized by politics? Well, Revelation helps us out with that. How, how are we supposed to respond to these beasts? You know, if, if you notice in this passage, what happens if you refuse to worship the beast? Verse 10 tells us that you could risk being taken captive or being slain with the sword. Yikes. How are we supposed to respond to that? It goes on to tell us that we should respond. It says, here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's the response to the beast. Now, that word endurance is one of the most important words in the book of Revelation. It shows up over and over and over again, and it describes the basic posture or stance of Christians. Um, in the original language, this word endurance means to stand strong, or uh, literally what it means is hyperstand. Endurance means to hyperstand. That means that whatever comes at you, it doesn't knock you down. You hyperstand. Politically speaking, this means that the church should never retreat or lay down in front of things like injustice, racism, oppression, violence, or corruption that we're called to hyperstand against those things. But as we do that, faith means that in our hyperstanding, we should always be pointing to Jesus as much as possible. That our hyperstanding against injustice in this country and in the world means that, that we're not hyperstanding as a way of pointing to human power to change the world, but as a way of pointing to God's power to change the world through Jesus that's what we're called to do. Now, um, by far, one of the best recent historical examples of what this looks like would be the civil rights movement of the 60s. There were a lot of people involved in that movement that were not Christians, but that was explicitly a movement of the black church. 
And Martin Luther King Jr. was explicitly driven and animated by the biblical doctrine that every human being is created in the image of God and that faithfulness to Jesus required a confrontation with the state, that the church was called to hyperstand against segregation at that time. So Martin Luther King, in one of his most famous sermons, talks about what is the relationship between the church and the state. He put it brilliantly. Here's what he said. The church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must, not, it must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. Wow. He, he goes on to say, if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, that's hyperstanding, then it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. Now, friends, listen, I, you may have um, political parties or candidates or platforms or agendas or ideologies that are important to you. They may even be beloved to you, but, but are we willing and able to, to critique those things? Are we willing and able to, to hold our ideologies and our politics and our political platforms and agendas and candidates, are we able to hold those things up to the light of Scripture and expose the idolatries and the distortions that, that are woven throughout them? Because every human political system has idolatries and distortions in it. We are called to hyperstand against those things. That means the church doesn't pick up the sword of power, as Martin Luther King said, the church is not the master or the tool of the state. In fact, what it means is most often it means being willing to go under the sword. That's what it meant for Dr. King and the marchers in the 60s. That's what it meant for the first Christians all the way back in the early Roman Empire. And that's what it could mean for you and me too, that we should be willing to go underneath the, store, the sword as we hyperstand in faith. Now, here's the big question. How in the world are we going to do that? Well, here's the answer. Whatever you worship, that's what you become. You become whatever it is you worship. Whatever you worship, that's what shapes you and forms you in its own image. So think about this. In this passage, what have we seen? What is human political power? When we worship human political power, that deforms us and, and dehumanizes us. What, what is human political power, it, this passage is showing us it's a knockoff lamb, a knockoff savior. So here's the question. If, if worshiping a knockoff lamb deforms and dehumanizes us, what would happen if we were to worship the true lamb, the true savior? Let me put it like this. If the worship of human power deforms and dehumanizes you, the power of Christ worship transforms and rehumanizes you. If the worship of power deforms and dehumanizes you, the power of Christ worship transforms and rehumanizes you. Friends, here's what this means. This means that one of the most politically subversive and socially transformative things you could possibly do is to devote yourself to spiritual formation in Jesus. It's to devote yourself to being formed in Christ because whatever you do, whatever you, however you act in society, whatever you do politically, it's always going to be determined by what it is that shapes you, what it is that forms you, and you are shaped and formed by whatever it is you worship. So what does that look like in our lives? Well, um, you know, and I'm speaking to myself here too. Um, when we talk or think about spiritual formation, how much time do we spend on social media? or 
watching cable news or uh, TV or Netflix or Prime or um, uh, browsing the internet or gaming, how much time do we spend being shaped and formed by those things compared to how much time we spend worshiping God or seeking him in solitude in prayer? or studying and meditating on his word, or, or joining together with other Christians to encourage and pray for one another. Friends, this crazy, broken world desperately needs people who are being deeply spiritually formed in Christ. The answer to the hypocrisy and the lameness of the church right now is not getting rid of the church, but for the church to repent and recommence being the church. And the way that happens primarily is by worshiping Jesus and, and, by, um, and by being deeply formed in Christ, the one who went under the sword for us. Because Jesus Christ on the cross, the, the one who formed all of creation, and the one who brought life to all of humanity on the cross, Jesus Christ was deformed. He was dehumanized so that we could be transformed and rehumanized. That means that the, the, the power of God's kingdom, the power of the gospel comes into the world, not by picking up the sword, but by absorbing the sword. Do you know what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross? He was hyperstanding. When all of the forces of evil, sin, suffering, and death, and injustice came at Jesus, he hyperstood. He held his arms wide, hands nailed to the cross, in order that he could absorb all of those things. Jesus Christ crushed those things by being crushed, but in allowing himself to be crushed, he was unleashing the power of his love and his grace and his life into the whole world. Friends, if the worship of power deforms and dehumanizes us, the power of Christ worship transforms and rehumanizes us. The more we worship Jesus, the more we're being transformed by his hyperstanding love and grace, then the more we're going to be transformed into people who can hyperstand in this world, but also as a way of pointing to the only one who has the power to bring change to this world, Jesus Christ. And friends, there is nothing more needed in this world. Let's pray. Abba, we give you all praise this morning. There is no power, there is no throne, there is no authority that is able to change this world and make it the place it's supposed to be other than you. You and you alone are the only power that can bring ultimate transformation to this world. And yet you call us as your people in this world to hyperstand in your name and to bear witness to you and through our hyperstanding to bring change into this world, to stand up for justice and for righteousness, and for peace, and for renewal. Father, we pray that you would help us to do just that, not by picking up the sword, but by willing to follow our Savior by going under the sword, the one who went under the ultimate sword for us on the cross, so that whatever persecution, or hardship, or trial may come our way, Lord, um, is never something that can take us down, because we hyperstand in you. We pray that you would help us to do that, and to be that, and to be spiritually formed in you more and more, Jesus, for we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.